Okay, so this is Mark chapter 9, starting verse 33. If you have a pew Bible, it's 1569. 1569. Anybody know what happened in 1569? Just for fun. Where's Rebecca Schmidt? 1550. You got anything for 1569? Somebody get out their Android. Okay. The 11th year of Queen Elizabeth I. I have no way of verifying or not verifying that. So there it is. Thank you, Raleigh. Sweet. Okay, good. Okay. You ready? So Mark 9, 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had, heard, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. If any, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and to go into hell where the fire doesn't go out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness— how can you, it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. You know, in the, in, the, in the land before TV, we were a little bit more patient with stuff you had to think about. So somebody like Jesus can talk in that kind of way. Have salt in yourselves and be salty and so forth. And, we, and we'd just be like, hmm, I can think about that for my seven-mile walk home that'll take most of the day, right? We don't really think in terms of like that. We'd be like, what does that mean? Let's Google it. What's going on, you know? So um, here's my shot at those three passages. Um, let's see what we got for PowerPoints here. Sweet. Okay. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear about a political scandal, I always silently and secretly hope it's not from the party that I vote for. Um, and the only reason that makes any sense at all, logically, is if I really do believe deep down that people who belong to—that I want—what I want to believe is, and I want empirical proof of, is, is that people in the party that I don't vote for 
because they're in that party, are more prone to have mistresses and scandals and embezzle money and pay themselves multi-million dollar bonuses and so forth. And that the people in my party, that's not true of because they have the same ideology as me, politically. And the problem is, is that I get disappointed about half the time. <laughs> you know? Um, I am just old enough to remember the Jim Baker scandal. I think, it's an, I think it was 88 he finally went to jail for um, having a Playboy centerfold mistress and embezzling like $3.4 million. In his defense, she didn't become a Playboy centerfold until after she was catapulted into the public eye for sleeping with Jim Baker. However, um, it was huge. I mean, he had, a, he had a show that 12 million people watched with like claymation movies. Okay, this is where TV was in 1988, all right? It was a huge, huge, huge scandal. And more recently, I think it was in 06 or 08, Ted Haggard, um, who was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, um, was caught like buying drugs and soliciting a male prostitute or something like that. Drugs, of course, which he never take, just like Bill Clinton never had. Well, we won't go into that. Um, I, I remember reading somewhere that the University of Washington did a study on high-level leaders. And what they found was, is that oftentimes, um, high-level leaders, very much in the public eye, with a lot of pressure running multiple organizations or multiple sectors of a business or so on, people like CEOs or pastors of large churches or politicians and so on, they get in these sorts of situations, and there's a psychological thing that begins to happen, that because there's so much pressure on them over here, they allow themselves a compartment over here where they can do whatever they want because they believe they deserve it even if it's fundamentally opposed to the thing they do over here. It's, it sounds, it partly sounds the worst, worst with pastors, right? You get a pastor who's supposed to be teaching about sexual purity, and he has a mistress, right? That, that's not supposed to work that way. But at the same time, think about a politician. How, it's just, it's the same amount of diametric opposition. A, they're in charge of the public trust, right? They embezzle money. That's or they don't pay their taxes, right? That's, that's equal. I mean, it's not, it won't make you as mad because there's not, a, there's not as high a level of sacredness to the trust with politicians, and we're all a little bit more disillusioned. Well, we're pretty disillusioned with pastors, aren't we? But, we, I mean, it's hard to get more disillusioned than with politicians. Am I right? You know, pastors may be a close second, but, you know, we're not quite there. Um, so, but here's, here's the issue with that. There is no evidence that that only happens with high-level leaders. It may be true that high-level leaders tend to do that, but there's no evidence that it's only high-level leaders that tend to do that. Um, the Nanny Diaries came up in our um, Netflix queue at some point. I won't say what member of our family put it in our Netflix queue because, of course, I would not be interested in such a film. But— um, it's about Upper East Side Manhattan families, particularly moms. So they have like one child. They have a nanny. They can buy everything. They live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and live that lifestyle. Yet they're constantly going away for me time. Because you've been taxed by what? <laughs> exactly. Somebody takes care of your kids, buys your groceries, does everything for you. And that, what is that so emotionally taxing that you need to go and recover from it? Right? But, that, but essentially, that's a stay-at-home mom who is just so stressed that they've got to have something to get away to, right? But it's, you go, oh yeah, because it's the rich. So you got politicians, you got pastors, you got the rich. But 
it may not be politically correct to say this, but same, it's true. The same, it's true for everybody. It's true for the poor, too. I mean, I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit, it was only eight hours to send people from my Florida church over to New Orleans. We sent people over there with, all, with stuff from our gas, water, diapers, all kinds of stuff. And we sent over there. We aren't government trucks, okay? We didn't have to send you anything. You didn't pay any taxes to our church, okay? Everything that we're sending is totally out of compassion, okay? And because of our love for Jesus. When we get there, I mean, it was like people were like, what do you mean I can only have four waters? What do you mean I can only have three gallons of gas to run this machine? What do you mean I can only, what are you talking? Like, now, here's the thing. That's not, was that true of everybody? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You, pull, you pulled into New Orleans, and there'd be some people who couldn't do enough for you, couldn't do enough for other people. They'd say, no, I don't need anything. I'm doing all right. And then, there, and then other people, same demographic, same socio-income class, same neighborhood, same almost anything that you can measure, were like, nothing you could do is good enough for them. Right? And what, what the bottom line issue here is, is that and, you know, I hate to use the category entitlement mentality because that gets so used politically. But just, you need to take the political connotation off of it because it's a human category, okay? The, the fact is that we are constantly moving into a sense of entitlement somewhere in our lives. If you're not killing it, it's killing you. It's just another form of sin that— Everybody, and so it's not, a, it's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democrat issue. It's not a rich people issue. It's not a poor people issue. It's not a middle class people issue. It's not a stay-at-home mom issue. It's not a dad that works issue. It's, it's, it's not a teenager issue. It's a human being issue. It's just the pretense on which we feel entitled and the thing we feel entitled to varies based on those things. That's all. But the basic dynamic of feeling entitled because of some pretense is universally human. And what, when G, and what Jesus is saying in this passage is that the gospel absolutely, completely, totally, on the deepest level, absolutely reverses all of that. And so one of the ways you could say it would be, would be this. Because I, I deserve. Or if you want to get, to just take it another step further, you could say it this way. Because I am this, I have to put up with this. So therefore I deserve this. Just take out a piece of paper, take out a pencil, and fill it in. Just fill it in. Just right now, take out a pencil. There's one in the pew. You've got a bulletin. Just fill it in. Do you want to grow spiritually? Do you really want to become more like Jesus? You want to hear some of my examples? All right, let's hear some of mine. Okay, now some of these are—I I wrote these—some of these I wrote for everybody. And then at the end I was like, okay, I really need to write these about me. So the last couple are just me. How about this one? Because I get up with the kids, I deserve to be crabby to you when you get home from work. <laughs> that one's not about me. That one—that one would be about somebody else. Here, here's, the, here's one. Because I earn a good income, I deserve to spend money on things that aren't in the budget that I want. Equal opportunity offense. Here's one. Because I'm unjustly disciplined by my parents, I deserve the right to be—to disobey and to be disrespectful to them. 
Because I give to the church, I deserve to have all my felt needs met by it. Because I don't flirt with other men, or if you're a man, because I don't flirt with other women or look at pornography, I deserve to have, I deserve the right to have regular sex at X frequency for my spouse. Because I have to be perfect at work, I deserve some space for my personal defects at home. That was me. Because I have to be warm and nurturing with the kids all day, I deserve to not have to be warm and nurturing and respectful towards you when you get home. I mean, you could make a lot of—you could write a lot of these, right? I probably could write—I suspect I could write 50 for myself. But, but there's a basic dynamic here that all of us live in because we're all sinful, because we're all selfish human beings. All of us— in some area, in some place, in some way, and most of us in many places, in many ways, have this entitlement mentality. Because we are this, and we have to put up with this, therefore I deserve this. And the whole gospel basically starts with the idea that you don't deserve anything for any reason in any way. And everything that we have, we get by sheer grace from God. So the Christian way to think about this would be this. Because Jesus gave everything for me when I, when I deserved nothing out of joy, I'll— Because Jesus gave everything for me when I deserved nothing out of joy or out of thankfulness or out of desire to be part of his redemption, out of, out of some motivation like that, I'll what? And what Jesus says is, I'll become last. I'll be willing to do anything for you. So the way this would play out would be something like this. Whoever wants to be first must become last. I was really creative with that, right? It's just virtually exactly what Jesus said in that verse. Whoever wants to be first must become the last of all. Or you could say it like this. Whoever wants to be great must become the menial servant of everybody. Or the Christian way to the top is by racing to the bottom. Now, listen, that's a cute little Christian cliche, and half of us really, half of us know to repeat it. But this is a, this is a really aggressive, complete flip on everything that we normally assume life ought to be like as human beings. If you work hard, you ought to get ahead, and that ought to get you privileges, and you ought to be able to enjoy them. And other people should have to work their way up the ladder just like everybody else. And the people at the top, there are responsibilities, and with responsibilities, there ought to be privileges. That's perfectly reasonable. But Jesus entirely contradicts it. The, more, the, the higher up you get, the more responsibility you get, the more, the more possible ways you can have perks for yourself, the more you need to race under everybody else. Okay, so there's two ways I want to get it. Here's what, here's what I want to try to impress upon you, because most of the people in this room have heard that before, it's that the first will be last, and the last will be first, and you should try to serve people, and all that kind of thing. You've heard that before. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to go through two things about how Jesus, particularly in this passage, tries to express to us just how critically important this is. That this, is ju this isn't something you can do in addition to the gospel if you, if you would like. This is just another way of preaching the gospel. This is the gospel. 
right? That the last become first and the first become last because the greatest one who was first became last so that we wouldn't be lost, right? That's the gospel. This isn't varsity level anything, okay? This isn't elective. It's just the gospel. Okay, so the one way that Jesus does this is, well, and this is really the whole Bible, is, is that this gets repeated a lot. A lot in the Bible. So let's just machine gun through some of these. This is a different passage. Oh, no, this is our passage. Sorry. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Feel the force of that word. Whoever wants to be first or the master must become the slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Note the logic. The logic is not, if you do this, I will bless you. The logic is, I did this. Jesus says, I did this. You're not greater than me. So you do this. Because if, because if, we, if we get what Jesus did, and we won't do it, then we don't get what Jesus did. Right? So I think Soren Kierkegaard said something like, if you claim to understand something and you don't do it, you don't understand it. You can't say, oh, I understand that, and then do the opposite. If you do the opposite, then you don't really understand it. Right? Luke 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and then you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Right? You see, it's the same dynamic. Yeah, here he says humbled versus first, last, versus great. It's the same teaching though, right? Luke 22, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them, but not so with you. you, well, you you're not supposed to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be, the, should be like the youngest. See, just, just different words, exact same teaching. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? Right? So he's saying, who's greater? The person who's sitting at the table or the person who serves him? It's the one who's sitting at the table, right? So you go, okay, great. So I want to be the one at the table. He goes, wait a second. What am I doing? I'm, ser I'm the servant. I'm the one bringing the food. I'm the one— Now think about that, right? He says, But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred it on me. Now the idea there is, so that you can do the same kind of work I'm doing right now, that is, serving, racing to the bottom, being like the youngest, being like the slave, coming in last, racing under everybody else. Right? So that you may eat and drink at my table in, the king, in my kingdom and sit on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. The whole—see, John doesn't talk about this as much as the other synoptic gospels are called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's partly because he reserves a whole chapter for it right at the beginning of the Passion Week. 
where, which is the passage about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It's this extremely graphic example of Jesus, who's the master, who's going to sit at the head of the table. He takes off his clothes. He dresses down like a servant. He gets on the ground, and he washes the feet of his disciples, right? It's, it's pretty, pretty straightforward, right? He says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place at the head of the table, right? Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord or master, Right? And you're right, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, there are some churches that consider this one of the ordinances— so you've got baptism, you've got communion, you've got foot washing. Because Jesus says right there, now that I've washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Right? It's a command. So on what pretense does High Point Church not have foot washing as a ordinance? So if the ushers could bring in the basins— I'm just kidding. I mean, <laughs> like, only if we believe that this is a picture for an entire holistic lifestyle of what it means to be a servant— that's the only way we shouldn't bring in the basins right now. It's if we go, the, Jesus' point here is, I'm the master. I become the servant and slave. Now you guys do that in everything. And so we do it in everything so we don't have to actually literally do the foot washing example because it doesn't really fit our culture. But there's a thousand different applications every minute of every day that does fit our culture that if we use one iota of creativity, we could come with a, with a list that we could never accomplish in a full day that we would do because we're all racing to the bottom because we're not greater than the master and the one who was Lord and Savior and King and Master raced to the bottom, right? But do you see how this is a little repetitive? This isn't like a little side teaching that kind of found a verse somewhere back in this page somewhere in a one-page book at the end of the something. I mean, this is everywhere. In Paul's letter, Philippians 2, this is one of the more famous ones. And notice how the logic starts not with, if you don't do this, you're going to hell. If the logic starts with, think about what you've received. Think about what God has already done for you and the effect that that must have on your heart. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same Love being one in spirit and purpose, right? Now, how are you going to do that in a community? Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Why? Right? Each of you should not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of the others. Why? Because your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who— being in his very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be crass, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Right? God saw fit to make the kingship of God forever, the exaltation of a slave. 
That was not necessary. It was not necessary that God the king become a slave so that he could become exalted and become king. That was not necessary. What God decided was because of the sort of being that he is, his, his thoughts, his belief, what he, what he sees as good, true, and beautiful, he chose to demonstrate his glories by, as king, becoming a slave, and, th- and then him saying, this is the one that I exalt as king over everything, the slave, the one who would serve. Think about the greatest king in the Old Testament that God wanted to, wanted to, uh, what did he do? He took a young boy shepherd, Okay? Now, I don't know how much you know about sheep and stuff, but being a shepherd, is, that's not a glorious profession. That's not like you could have a big singing contract in Los Angeles, or you could be a shepherd, or, you know, these are all pretty much the same. It's, it's not like that. I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know how many times my wife is going to have to wash the shirt I wore yesterday at the explosion where I held that lamb straight from the pen. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, the kids were petting it and dry heaving at the same time. It was really cute. Um, that's not true, actually. Um, but I mean, it just it smelled, and like, I mean, people are like, oh, shepherds, this sweet little— No, it's not fun. I've been to Israel. Like, I've been on all those hills where the Bedouins do the whole shepherding thing. It's dust and rock, okay? It's not like, you know, walking into your neighbor's cornfield and feeding the sheep, okay? You got to go miles to find water through, like, just dust, rock, heat— And then you got to like, I mean, you just got to find some little shrub to to like get under because it is blisteringly— I mean, it's a—it is not a profession you would choose. I mean, you don't don't just go, oh, little Jimmy's going to grow up. He's going to be a shepherd. I just know it. You know? It's just that's not how it works. But—but think about that. God comes in and he calls the king of Israel in the Old Testament, Israel's shepherd. He comes in and he calls the priests. He says, my shepherds who I've appointed, they, they take the wool, they eat the meat, they do all the privileges, but they don't serve and protect and love the sheep. Like in God's mind, no matter how exalted or great or, or cool or, or sacred an office was, whether you were a king or a priest or a leader or a general, it didn't matter. You were just a shepherd. That's all you are, okay? And if you don't smell bad at the end of the day, you didn't do your job, okay? It is a race to the bottom, even if you're the king, even if you're the, at the highest level. You should smell like poop at dinner time, okay? Because that's the job. Because the king of all things submitted to the murder, rage, and death and agony of the cross to shepherd his sheep. Okay, we're not going to have time for the second point if we don't go to it. So the first is, it's kind of repeated. Okay, so, so you're like, well, how big is this? It's kind of big. It's everywhere. It's, it's all over the Bible because it's at the heart of the gospel. This isn't something you can ignore. This is, this is central. And then, so secondly is, there's kind of an extreme level of seriousness surrounding this passage. I don't know how much you listen to the passage I read, but it's, it's pretty, pretty sobering, I would say. And not just negatively. Like, you might be like, yeah, there was kind of a lot of hell in that passage. Yeah, 
Yeah, there was. But, li- but listen, it's very easy to not realize that there was a lot of amazingly, po- really good stuff in that passage. For example, one of the things that's, a, that's sort of an extreme level of seriousness is the extreme level of privilege if we actually do this. Remember, right after Jesus said, he goes, okay, whoever wants to be first among you needs to be last in the sermon hall. Then right after that, what does he do? He takes a little boy or a little kid, right? And he brings him to the center of all the disciples. Now, and this is formal teaching time. Like it says, he called them to him. He had them all sit down, you know? And then, so, and then it says, he takes the kid up in his arms, right? And he says, he took a little child, had him stand among them. And then taking him in his arms, he said to them, right? So he's holding the child. And he's, he's looking at all the disciples. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Okay? Now, that's really easy to read over. You can read that, and the emotional freight is simply, God wants us to do this. We better do it. But that's not what that actually says. What it actually says is that if if you race to the bottom, if you get down there and you do the most menial thing, if you get, if you just go, I have, there's no privilege to me. Okay? What needs to be done? It might be be cool. It might not be cool. It might be moving a chair. It might be doing something that's really in my gifting and passion. It could be anything, but how can I just, how can I do something? How can I race to the bottom? How can I be the one who gets in there and serves? And Jesus goes, you just, you pick up this little kid and you've welcomed me. And when you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. You welcome God Almighty. You welcome the king of the universe. So when you, you go to the nursery, right? And you play with a little kid and he does the same puzzle. 74 times, right? It's like those things with little of the cat, there's the dog, there's the fish, right? And he's like, ooh, let's, and you're like, I think you got it. And you're like, he's like, let's, can we do it again? And you're like, uh, yes, I think the answer is yes. I don't know how to say no to that. So yeah, so where does, who knows where the fish could possibly go? You know? <laughs> but you know, you hang in there with him and you're, you know, you're, you're you'd nurture the kid. You're just, you spend an hour trying not to be bored to the point of cardiac arrest and ha- making sure the kid has a nice time. You know, and maybe you talk about Jesus. I don't know. But you just do something. Jesus is saying, you welcome the Father. You welcome God Almighty. You, he doesn't say that about preaching. He doesn't say that about eldering. He, does, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say that about the— He says that about picking up a child in his arms. And I— that's, and I think that's, I think that's an expression for a lot of other things, too, that are, that are people consider at the bottom. P, GK, I don't know how many times I've probably already quoted this, but G.K. Chesterton has this, this great quote where he said one time, he said, I always distrust people who have a love for humanity, but I always have warm affection for people who actually love their neighbor. Because he was always concerned about people who had big ideology dreams and like, we're going to— But the person who actually could go next door and help a person pump out their basement because it was flooded. He said, those are very different, those are very different things. And he, and he was saying, essentially, I've met too many people who take personal consolation in their own goodness because they have big ideological thoughts about humanity— and what they would like to see. And because they have those ideas bouncing around in their head, they're somehow good because of them. And he said, those people are scare me. But the person who can stop what they're doing and help somebody else, 
those people are the people who get it. Now, the second thing he says is that there's an extreme security to what we do this way. If we serve like this, whatever we do, there's an extreme amount of security to it. I mean, think about what he says here. He says, For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a— Since he's, he's talking to the disciples, and he's saying, If you give anyone a— You know, if anybody gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ, right? So their motivation is, this person is part of the kingdom. This person is serving Jesus. Let me, ser- let me help them, Right? If their motivation, if they give you this cup of cold water because you belong to me, that, i.e., they're a believer, and they're doing it out of a spiritual motivation, right? I think they could give the cup of cold water to a non-believer, too, if they did it because they belonged to Jesus and they were doing it on Jesus' behalf, right? I think it's a gospel motivation, but we can argue about that later if you, if you think I'm wrong. He says, if you do my, my name because of Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. Now, in, in English, we don't have— Double negatives are bad, right? We don't, we don't do double negatives because they actually mean the opposite, right? When you use a negative twice, it means the positive, right? There was a—I think there was an Oxford professor who was talking to a Jewish rabbi and said one time, he said, um, you know, the th- one of the things about English is you can use—you can say two negatives to make a positive, but you can't ever do two positives to make a negative. And the rabbi said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that funny? Okay. <clears throat> Oh, the PowerPoint killed my font. Okay, so the, the font isn't working here. This should all be Greek. But apparently our low-tech Sunday. Remember, just stay with this theme. This is planned. Low-tech Sunday. Everything goes wrong. Okay, so um, in Greek, you can have double negatives, and it's for impact. So you can have not something, or you can have not not something. And in a few cases— you can have three knots. Not, not, not. I think in First Peter there's one. It's like a triple knot. But right here, Jesus says, ume, which are both words for not. There's three words for not. There's, this is two of them. And so he's like, if you, for those who give it, um, will, so the translation is certainly not for not, not, which is basically absolutely not. Like, it's, if you look, if you know how Greek syntax works, he's intentionally saying it so there is no possibility at all for this reward to be lost. It is locked. And he's intentionally emphasizing that. So if, if you welcome this child, right? If you welcome a child, you're welcoming God Almighty. If you give a cup of water, you cannot lose your reward, right? Those, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, to think, all you got to do is not be proud not have a sense of entitlement, not be thinking about yourself, look out, give out, turn out. How can you help other people? How can you, how can you help somebody more menially than they help you? And you are welcoming God Almighty, and you are accruing a reward that God is happy to give for somebody who, who, who wants to be like Jesus, like that, that you cannot lose. Okay, like, okay, he's going to talk about hell now. But you need to realize that Jesus is extremely proportionate in the way he talks. And we can't read over the good stuff and then just get all pissy about the, oh, there's Jesus talking about hell again. Well, maybe he needs to. Right? 
Okay, so let's wrap up. This, the third one is, under the extreme seriousness, the seriousness of it, is an extreme soberness. That, listen, Jesus is going to defend his little ones. In the passage before, it's a little child. But now it's a category that covers everybody who classifies as the lowest level. The normal, pedestrian, average person who do, may not know what end is up. That he, when Jesus looks out, he sees the masses first. He sees the story of every blue-collar worker, of every laborer, of everybody who grew up in a dysfunctional family. He sees every person that we lead or that we know or that we—he sees all those stories and all those people. He's not like me who walks around and immediately sizes people up and competes with them. He sees everybody as an object of his affection, a sheep for his pasture, one who he loves by virtue of creation and desires to redeem back to himself through redemption. They all belong to him, and he will not have you or me turn them out. And you are expendable— if you take that role. That's what he's saying. He's, and he is, he's apparently dead serious about that. That the, the little child, that the normal person, that the person whose faith is weak, whoever classifies as the little one, you screw with them, you screw with him. Period. Th listen, that's a very helpful point. It's a very helpful point. You start looking at your kids like that. You start looking at your wife or your husband like that. You start looking at your coworkers like that. You start looking at the people in the other political party like that. You start looking at the people in your neighborhood like that. You start looking at people in other countries like that. You, st you start looking at humanity like that. And you get beyond the ideology. You start looking at each human being like that. It really cha it changes things pretty seriously. Now, one of the things that I don't like about this, the translation in the NIV in this is that— um, Okay, I'm just going to skip all that because I have three, three minutes left and I want to talk about some stuff about us, okay? So, there, blah, 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 more interesting things. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, so here's the thing. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? When I was 16 and my, my brother was 18, we were driving to church. It was this little country church. And um, it only had 20 parking spaces, and about 50 people went there. And so it would, you know, the parking lot would fill up. And so he drove past the church, down the road to a grocery store, and parked there. And we walked 800 yards back to the church. And there was this little girl who would stand out in her front yard and mock us for going to church. Like 400 yards down the road. We, get to, we got to walk by here. It was really nice. Um, and I was like, why do we park here? He's like, other people need those spots. We have visitors. There's older people. There's moms with kids. We're teenagers who played three sports, right? We can park down here. So I was like, you know, that's, that's right. I mean, it's nothing for me to walk 800 yards. You know, for, there's some people probably in this room, walking 800 yards, buddy, that's, that's a day's work, okay? Or a mom trying to, get, trying to get three kids 800 yards. Tell you what, get me some grumpiness when I get home. I tell you what, it's, it's not fun, or a mom, she's, you know, she's like, she's in the waddling stage. She's like nine months and like two days pregnant. You know, her belt, you know, the cork is popped in the whole gig. Like, and so what if we all raced to the furthest parking spots away when we, when we came to church? What if we did that? 
What if, what if the children's ministry had to turn us away because they had too many people who wanted to volunteer every week to get out of the service so other people could be in the service because we wanted to serve the parents and other parents wanted to serve other parents. They just wanted other people to be able to be in here. So Kathleen was just like, no, I just can't take any more volunteers. I just can't have any more people. I just can't, I just can't use you. I mean, what if that happened? You know, or what if, you know, what if your neighbors are like, why are you over here helping me? Even though they don't, they may not help you. I mean, what if, what if we all, what if we all were competing to serve each other more menially than the other person? So, you know, the, um, the preacher always loses, right? The person who brings food to the ABF can only be beaten by the person who cleans up. The person who cleans up gets beaten by the person who shovels snow. The person who shovels snow is beaten by the person who cleans toilets. And the person who cleans toilets is beaten only by the person who volunteers for junior high ministry. <laughs> okay, real fast, because I'm just out of time. Sorry. I, I, I think people's final question is this. Okay, let's say I really take that on board, Nick. Um, how can I realistically serve everyone? I mean, how do I apply this without being just run ragged and be become a doormat or, you know, be really, uh, be really oppressive to my life and my family and so on? And let me say two really quick things about that. I wish I had 50 minutes to talk about this. One is, um, there's this part where, in, in Augustine's writings, where he says, love God and then do whatever you want. So people can say, well, what should I do about this? What should, he just says, listen, if you learn to love God and you learn who God is and you love God first, then you can just do whatever you want. So there's some things you'll do, some things you won't do, but you'll always be guided well. And one thing I would say is this. I don't know who you'll serve in what way and, and where, where you'll have to say no or what the end will be or how generous or— I don't know. But what I do know is if we start by getting this attitude straight and we look to apply it and then just apply it, we're going to be in a pretty good place. And then we're going to figure out how to, where we say no. Then the, the second thing is, is this is don't stop being fair, okay? The, the, the reality is once you get this attitude straight, just do for somebody what you wish you could do for everybody, okay? Listen, I can't, I can't visit everybody every week. I can't, there's, there's limits to what I can do. There's limits to what you can do. And so I can say, well, because I can't go and see everybody when they're sick, I'm just not gonna see anybody when they're sick. Because I can't help this, all the staff members in this way, I'm not gonna help this staff member this way. Because I can't, because I can't have daddy dates with every kid every week, I'm just never going to take my kids out to do anything. No. You, you, you do what you can. I, I, okay, the kid example is bad to do for one day. That's, I don't mean that with the kids. You, gotta, you just got to rotate them. But, but do for somebody what you wish you could do for everybody. You know? You might not be able to greet every visitor who comes through the door and invite every visitor to lunch and, you know, have every visitor over to your house and, you know, talk— but you can meet one person, and if you find one that doesn't think you're weird and actually wants to talk back with you, then, you know, say, well, can I show you something? You want to come to my ABF? Or, you want, and just see, see what happens. You can't, you can't be the person who does that for everybody. But if everybody's doing it, everybody will be welcomed. If everybody's racing to the bottom, everybody will get there. And then everybody gets pushed up. Here's my very last comment before— Stop. And that is, is that this has got to start with our leaders. And I'm not saying that our leaders aren't doing a good job of this. I was at the explosion yesterday, and there were like 50 people here all morning on a Saturday, and they just killed it. I mean, it was, it was amazing. 
Um, and so I'm not saying that this is a, this is a lack. I'm, what I'm saying is, is that you, you got it. This is one of the things that it's opposed to our sinful nature. So if we don't keep after it and keep hitting it, even if we're good at it now, we won't be good at it later. We'll just be like, hey, we're pretty good at this. And then stop doing it. With, so it's got to start with me, right? It's got to start with me and our staff and our elders and our ministry leaders and our deacons. All of us have to do this conspicuously. So that we can, we can lead. Every, if we keep dig, trying to get under everybody else, people see that. They'll respond to it. They'll realize that's, the, that's what the gospel looks like. So we've got to get our attitude. Listen, if your attitude isn't right about this, get your, you have to get your attitude right about it. And if, and if you can't, it's, it's something with the gospel. You have to get your attitude right towards Jesus first before you can get— So if you're like, I can't do this, be like, okay, we'll just back up to Jesus. We'll work on that. But if you can, if you go, you know what, that's right. I understand that. I get that. I believe in Jesus. This should be my attitude. Then the second is, do for somebody what you wish you could do for everybody. And then third, we leaders, those of us who are leaders, ministry leaders, family leaders, elders, staff members, we have got to do this like gangbusters. This has got to be one of the marks of the culture of our whole community. If you want to be a leader here, you better believe this. And if you want to be an elder here, you better be ready to tell me I'm not doing this and ready for me to tell you you're not doing this. And if, um, if you want to be a staff member here, you better be ready for this to be the store you own. This is your store. And so if the floor needs to be mopped, if something needs, if something needs to be done, I'm going to do it. The job, when, when you own something, job descriptions become meaningless. When this is your church, what your gifts and passion are, those are helpful, but they're not everything. Because we're all driving towards the goal, and that's what matters, and we'll do anything to get there. Because there is a king who is conferring on us a kingdom. But he's called the first to be last. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us a people who are so taken with the king who became a slave, who is exalted over all things, that we would be a people who take an extreme amount of pleasure in racing to the bottom of the heap in terms of our entitlement. We pray that we, you would help us to become people who take great pleasure in serving and loving others and loving the very least of people. And we pray, Father, that you would, um, you would use that to help us to grow very deeply in our enjoyment of you, in our enjoyment of the gospel, and in our ability to honestly um, love other people, both in our community, in, in this church, and also our neighbors and people who don't believe in you, but who are sheep outside your pasture that, that you died for and are seeking to redeem and have dignity just because you created them, even if they're far from you. So we pray that you would make us the people who become last. And we pray that we would have the great privilege of welcoming you and doing something that you are so keen to reward that the reward you give for it can never be lost. And help us to be sobered by the warning that you give if we don't take this command seriously. Because it is the very gospel itself.
Why don't you stand for the benediction?